Today, let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. And our reading today will be verses 17 through 24 of Ephesians 4. We're continuing a series of sermons on biblical foundations for change. And um, this one is really going to tell us what walking worthy before the Lord looks like and a dynamic that needs to be present in our life as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desire and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you um, that you've given us your word, that it is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, is able to uh, cut deeply between the joints and the marrow and is a critic of the thoughts and motivations of our hearts. We pray that you might give us light today and that you would work in us a willingness to hear your word and to do it, to live it out. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, this is a wonderful passage and there's much more that I'm to say than I'm going to be able to say, but what I want to do is have you look at chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 to see this as sort of orienting us to the context. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now that is what the context of the passage is about. It's about living as a believer. And Paul is now bringing to bear upon us the teaching he has been giving in the first three chapters. And then he begins to focus more here on practical living, on exhortations, on urging us to do certain things. But we never need to forget that all of these exhortations toward godliness, where God addresses our will through his word, 
are always preceded by things that God has done for us already. So we're not just, you know, um, urging ourselves, to giving ourselves a pep talk and telling ourselves we really need to get with it. It is more responding out of the gospel and what God has accomplished to us. We have practical responsibilities to live out the reality we've already experienced. And so that's what he's doing in this chapter. In terms of the structure of the passage, let me just in passing say, the exhortation not to live like Gentiles and a more positive counterpart setting out the type of life that is in accord with the Christian tradition is exactly what Paul is doing here. He is contrasting in writ rather large uh, the, the lifestyle of our pre-Christian existence uh, with our lifestyle as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he sets in motion here a number of what I would call admonitions to help us think our way through this. And it basically boils down to this. Uh, there are the structure is really rather simple and rather memorable. First, and I have it in the three points, he tells us there's something we need to lose. You need to lose it. We'll talk about that more and more. Second, he said there's something you must learn. And third, there is something you must live. You must lose it, learn it, and live it. To lose it means you abandon your lifestyle of the pre-Christian existence. You lose it because it is not who you are anymore. You have a new identity in Christ. You are a new creature. You are part of the new creation. I don't want to go any further because I have a whole point on that. Number two, you need to learn it. That means you need to enroll in the school of Christ. And basically the school of Christ is Christian truth, doctrine. We need to learn new ways of seeing and thinking in order to experience the depths of biblical change. And that learning is not just learning about Christ, it is learning Christ. It's like any relationship you enter into. You don't know everything there is to know about a person unless you work for the FBI and you got other pr problems as well. Uh, you don't know everything about any person you would ever ask out on a date. Some people do their research, I'm sure, and uh, probably not wrong to do that. But as you live with that person or as you develop that relationship, dating ultimately lend, uh, leading to marriage, you begin to learn that person. For example, uh, my wife doesn't just know information about me. She knows my ways. She's been living with me almost 40 years. She knows me. She can predict how I'm going to respond. And she's become quite adept at knowing how to work me. No. Uh, <laughs> but she, she knows my ways. She, I'm predictable to her. She's predictable to me as much as a woman can be predictable to a man. <laughs> but we've learned each other. To enter the school of Christ is not just to know information about, it is to know Him. It is connecting with Him. It is an intimate relationship with Him. And thirdly, 
we have to live it. We have to learn what it means to put off the old man, which is not your father, uh, and get rid of the rotting grave clothes and to put on the new man and by continually renewing our paradigm which is basically a new way of seeing and living life based on the powers of the age to come the new creation repentance is the way we enter into the new paradigm and we begin to um, grow in that way and so Let's take these three things and expand them a little bit, and then we'll be done, and then we can have communion, and then we can go, right? It's that simple. First, it's never that simple. Uh, lose it. He begins with a strong, urgent, authoritative exhortation. And he wants to impress upon them the contrast of what they had been as pagans or pre-Christians Pagans is an old word, but it's becoming more and more new every day. There's a new paganism, by the way, in our culture. And he tells them that what they had been in, as pagans and what they are now as Christians, the old man he speaks of and, and the new man he speaks of, and we need to become in our daily living, in our lifestyle, that's what the word parapateo means in Greek. It's translated in your Bible, walk. Walking by the Spirit, walking in the flesh. It means lifestyle, the way I live out what I really believe. And so he's telling us that our old lifestyle is something we should lose. Something that we are responsible before God to no longer take our cues from the spirit of this age. And he paints it in very, very uh, dark colors in this text. Now, I am a Seinfeld fan. And you know that show is a, a show about nothing. In other words, uh, it's nihilistic. Nihilism is a philosophy of nothingness. Nihilism says this. We came from nothing. We're headed for nothing. Why not have the guts to admit that my life means nothing? And that is exactly what Seinfeld is about. But there's one episode I'm thinking about that I thought had some application here. And so it's the episode about Pez dispensers. You know what Pez dispensers are and the little candy. And so they're at a piano recital, and it's George's new girlfriend. And Jerry, out of the blue, takes out a Pez dispenser and places it on Elaine's lap. And she uncontrollably breaks up. She cannot stop laughing. And she's at a concert. Uh, a, a pianist playing a concert is George's girlfriend. And she can't control her laughter, and it totally undoes George's girlfriend she's trying to play. And so afterwards, they're waiting outside her dressing room, and they get into this big discussion about what they're going to do and who's going to say what and how they're going to hide the fact that it was Elaine. And it goes on and on. But eventually, George says something like this. He said, can we cut to the chase? And Jerry goes, cut to the chase. George says, yeah. He said, what are you, Joe Hollywood? He said, a lot of people say that, George says. Jerry says, I would lose that. I would lose that. George says, what's that? He said, lose that. 
That's not a Hollywood expression, George. Yes, it is. Paul is saying, I would lose that. That's what he's saying in this passage. And so he's speaking of the old man. He's speaking of the pre-Christian pagan lifestyle. And it begins with the idea of the mind spiraling downward to being completely out of control. This pagan lifestyle in verses 17 through 19 begins with idolatrous thinking. That is the root. He says, don't fall back into that kind of paradigm. You need to lose that paradigm. You need to abandon it. It's very similar, this passage, by the way, to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And there he traces the dynamic of idolatrous thinking and dispositions to their effects in everyday life life. He distinguishes between root and fruit. And he tells us to lose the old mindset that is distorted. And it leads to futility, which is emptiness. Idol worship always results in emptiness. It is pointless. It is meaningless. It is like the writer of Ecclesiastes who uses the word vanity, vanity, all is vanity, which is the Hebrew word cabal, cabal. Because it lacks a relationship with God, it lacks an orientation toward truth, pagan thinking is out of touch with reality. It has what he calls deceitful desires. That is, desires that lie to you. Idols always promise to you a blessing. They promise to make your life full and better and whole. That's why they're so seductive to us. They seem plausible. They seem reliable. But they lie to us because they never deliver on what they promise. They never give back to us what we're hoping for. And idols are anything in our lives that we substitute for God. And we trust in and we hope in. And if only my life could have this. That is the root core of every pagan living in the world. And they're blinded to it. They're living in the dark. Because it lacks any idea of truth and reality and it's left fumbling with worthless trivialities and side issues rejecting and not recognizing God leads to utter futility and it finds itself mired uh, in the idolatry of the heart as one writer has says if we, uh, if we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. And so the mind is the center of the human perceptions of the heart. It isn't just intellect, it's more than that. And in verse 18, he tells us that we are darkened, that our understanding, the perception, dimension, and the human estrangement from God leads to blindness to the truth. Ignorance here uh, is... The inability to see insight. Uh, it has to do with Hebraic knowledge. To know God is to be in an intimate, close, personal relationship with them. And it has to do with an obedient, grateful response of the whole person, not simply the intellect or not simply content. Ignorance in this passage is a failure to be obedient and grateful. It is worse than hate or anger. It describes a total stance of the heart. A total stance of the heart. It is saying it ignores him. It is saying no to God. No to his demands. No excuse. I did not know. 
I do know, but I'm saying no. And I am responsible, I reject the idea of responsibility and accountability. And I have a willfulness about me that is what the hardness of the heart is. It is an obstinate, stubborn rejection, a, a, a gain in willful guilt that leads to a terrible downward spiral in the path of evil. It is stiff-necked. That's how Paul describes pagan culture. Now, it's dark, but it's real. And he says, when you look at the, the culture around you, you saints at Ephesus, remember, that is what you were. That is who you were. That was your identity. That was your lifestyle. And he says, you need to lose that. He's, the greatest contradiction in the world is a genuine Christian who goes back and lives like that. It's like a, Peter says, a dog returning to vomit. It is gross. And it is so inconceivable uh, for it to really happen. Uh, and so the lifestyle they need to lose is a lifestyle in which they've lost all sensitivity. Their, their conscience is seared. Their heart is hard and calloused. They feel no pain. They never blush. They lose the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment about anything. There's a loss of self-control. There is no restraint. There is a pledging, uh, plunging headlong into degrading activities and abandoning oneself to debauchery, which is impurity and covetousness. God hands them over to it, and they pursue it. This whole idea of God handing over or giving people over. Why do you think our culture is so godless today? Because it is reflecting in present tense the already aspect of judgment. God's way of judging people in the present time is not merely the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of time or in the consummation of all things the second coming but he's bringing judgment now and he brings judgment upon people when they rebel against him and refuse to hear him and harden their hearts and resist him at every point and say no to him those are not small things those are big things. But it captures, it's a picture of the culture. Even in Romans it says that those who do such things uh, approve of them and, and, and applaud them. Things that are being done in the open today were totally in the closet and taboo less than a generation ago. I am marveling at how rapidly our culture is moving and people say, I've heard preachers say this all of my life, that if God doesn't bring judgment upon America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. God is bringing judgment to America. He's already doing it. But it isn't America. It's just fallen culture. We see signs of judgment all around us. I read in the paper today that only for the first time in the history of this country, 40 9% of people believe in God. That's less than 50%. And the rest of them are not true. Millennials are far worse in the statistics. This culture is rapidly falling down. Why? 
because it's working itself out. God is giving people over to these things, giving them over to pursue it with debauchery and indulgence and throwing off all restraint and flaunting itself without respect for or without reference to self-respect or public decency or rights or feelings. They live in an impure, riotous, excessive way. One element is not only sexual covetousness, but a continual lust for more. There is a cycle of insatiable desires, new perversions, sought to replace the old, self-destruction, rooted in worship and the wrong God. Like Marie Antoinette, the culture ends up saying, nothing tastes. After indulgence, nothing tastes. Well, that's pretty hopeless, isn't it? Thank God he has rescued us out of it. He has intervened. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us how he did it. When he was moved by mercy to call us out of darkness into his marvelous life, to, to regenerate us and create in us a heart for him. And so first thing Paul says is you need to understand that lifestyle. You need to see the mindset that goes with that lifestyle. You need to see where that lifestyle is heading. You need to be grateful that God has lifted you out of that and placed you in union with Christ. And then you need to learn how to live a new way. Not like that anymore. Now, why would he have to do that? Because this is Ephesus. In Ephesus, in the first century, our times are approaching more and more what was going on in uh, Greco-Roman culture and the ancient Near East during the time of the first century. Which is why I believe the church has to adopt a posture very similar to what happened in the book of Acts that apologetics are coming to the forefront. We live in different times. The days of Christendom, having our cultural institutions informed by and shaped by a biblical theological ethic are gone. It's over. It's done. And so we have to learn how to be the church in that kind of culture. Now, he tells us there's something we need to learn. And this is very important. We need to learn to enter the school of Christ and develop what the Bible calls the mind of Christ, Christ-centered thinking. We need to learn a person, the person of Christ. And in the context of that teaching, we need to learn Christ in the same way that a Jewish person under the Old Covenant would learn Torah. Torah isn't just law. Torah is living out the implications of the law. And we learn Christ by welcoming him as a living person, being shaped by his teaching that involves us submitting to, not rebelling against, but submitting to his rule, his rule of righteousness, and responding to his values and his standards which he gives us. Paul speaks of learning Christ. You have heard of him in the initial response to the gospel. Chapter 1 verse 13 talks about that. But you need ongoing instruction. We need to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And disciples are learners. Learners who sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of him. And the truth is it is found in the gospel and live in alignment with that truth of the gospel. 
The reality is the historical Jesus is the embodiment of truth with a capital T. He is the truth, he tells us. But finally, he tells us in verses 24, 22 to 24, that we need to live it. The content of Christian instruction, which is found in the person of Jesus, is now amplified or explained by three infinitives in the original language. He tells us to put off, he tells us to be renewed, and he tells us to put on. That is the Christian mambo. That is the dance we are to do. And these infinitives spell out three fundamental aspects of gospel reality that has been passed on and received as we break with the past we live out the implications of our regeneration our conversion and what baptism represents baptism tells us we are buried together with Christ and we are raised again to walk with him in a new life so here's the reality once Jesus Christ becomes your Lord and Savior once your eyes have been opened to the truth, once God makes you alive to the reality of the spiritual world and to the reality of the person of Christ, and he puts his spirit within you, and he gives you a new heart, then he calls you to live in a certain way. He's done all this to you. Now he tells you how you respond. What he's really saying is this. He divides, uh, the Jews divided up time in two ways. There were the things that were the past and the things that are to come. What Paul teaches is amazingly this. He is saying the powers of the age to come, that is the age in which Christ will come and will have a new heavens and a new earth and there will be paradise here, uh, that uh, this world will be restored to all of its glory and we will live together uh, with Christ. We will be changed. We will be made like him. But those powers have already impinged are broken in the present age. And the present age tells us that the powers of the age to come are already operating on those of us who believe. Now they operate in an already but not yet fashion. In other words, we have a foretaste of who and what we're going to be when Christ returns, but only a foretaste. That's why at times we feel attraction maybe toward the old lifestyle why we're sucked up and drawn back into it is because we only have it in a down payment fashion. But what he's telling us here is amazing. He says, first, put off that old person, that old man, the whole personality dominated and ruled by the power of sin that is earmarked for demolition. It is foolish to let him play any kind of role in your redemptive life. It's like walking around carrying on your back a corrupting corpse. That's what the old man is. He's rotten to the core. There's ongoing decay. It ends in death. And the desires of the old man called the epithumia, over-desires, idols, desires of the flesh, deceit, lies, trick, no truth. He says, lose that guy. Even though decisively, in coming to Christ, that old man has received his death wound. He's not dead yet. He's not dead yet. 
That's why we have to put him off. He uses a clothing imagery here where it's like taking off dirty, dirty clothes. Um, reminds me when I, I go to the gym, what is the old saying? Uh, women glow, men perspire, and horses sweat. Well, nay, Winnie. When I go to the gym, I'm a horse. I don't want to be around anybody because I'm soaking wet. My head's wet. My whole body's wet. I'm not real sure about how I smell always. I can't wait to get home and get out of those clothes. Why? Because they're inappropriate for human consumption. So like that, or getting out and digging in the garden all day, or I don't know how you get yourself dirty and how your clothes get dirty, but anyway, it's like throwing them off and putting on the new man. So we put off the old, old person, but we focus on the second infinitive, which is to be renewed in the mind. This is a present infinitive, which means this is a process. And it's passive. We are passive in this. To be made new is to yield to God and allow transformation through the renewal of the mind to occur. Now, there's a big argument among New Testament scholars as to whether the Spirit here should be capitalized as the Holy Spirit, or rather, it is speaking of the Spirit of the person. If I ever have to choose, I always go with the Holy Spirit because I don't have much confidence in the Spirit of a person. I have a lot of confidence in the Holy Spirit. So I have come down on the side that he's speaking here of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work of renewing us. He renews us in our innermost being. Other places in Scripture address this. He changes the pattern, the motivation, and the direction, and the perceptions of our heart that we discover that we need to be changed, that the disordered motivations that we are hardwired to need to be erased and new software needs to be put in its place. And that kind of lifestyle will issue in righteousness, which simply means right living, and holiness, which means a set apartness to God that reveals itself in our character and our moral life. That's what he's talking about. And so when you contrast what we are hearing here about renewal with verses 17 through 19, we see the stark, desperate condition of the pagan cycle. The darkened understanding, blindness to the truth, alienated from God, ignoring him, degrading lifestyle. The flow of the argument implies that the inner being, apart from the Holy Spirit's renewal of our hearts, is unable to guide us and our motivations to live a life that pleases God. Right living is the fruit of having our mind renewed by the Spirit showing us Christ. He will show us Christ. That's how we learn Christ. Our mind is renewed. We have new patterns of thinking. We develop what Colossians calls the mind of Christ, a mind in union with him. And then we put on the new person. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We are part of the new creation. It is God's mighty work, not ours, and yet we are responsible to put it on. We are responsible to understand our new identity in Christ. 
We are to gladly appropriate that, recognizing that God is at work in us, that we are created in the likeness of God and uh, true righteousness and holiness, uh, which happens as God renews his image in us. The imago Dei, the image of God in man that we see spoken of in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that was uh, corrupted as a result of the fall into sin. Now it is being renewed by the Spirit. One day it will be perfected when Christ returns. And so in order to change deeply, we must, of course, have God at work in us. But at the same time, there are things we need to do. And we need to lose the old man. We need to have our mind renewed on an ongoing process. And then we need to recognize that we need to put on the new man. If you'll look back in um, Ephesians chapter 2, flip over there please. And let's look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse has a lot of agreement with the, the verses I've just been looking at. And when you get home this afternoon, you might read the rest of chapter 4 because he gives a series of examples about how we put off the old, have our mind renewed, and put on the new. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to leave you in the dark. Look in chapter 4. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The implication here is to lie or be uh, uh, duplicitous or to deceive or to defraud anyone is destructive. It destroys a person. He says that is part of old man lifestyle. You put that off. What is the new man? Speaks the truth. Speaks the truth. You can go on down the page and you will see it. But essentially what he's saying is not only is Jesus the author of this work in us, he is the pattern by which we learn to live as we put on the new man. We are to become what? we really are. Who are we? We are sons of the living God, adopted children. We have God's Spirit dwelling within us. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our sins are remembered against us no more. We have a new heart. We've been made alive by God. We have a repentant spirit we have humility and brokenness because of God's work in our life. And that's who we are. And this is how we're to live. And so the whole of sanctification, growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, growing into his likeness, being conformed to his image, is a process that will go on for the rest of our lives. However, look at the quote on the first page and I'll close. It is a fight, it is a war, it is spiritual war. But David Pallison says this in his book, Making All Things New. One key to fighting well is to lengthen your view of the battle. If you think that one week of shock and awe combat will win this war of redemption, you're bound to be disappointed. 
If you're looking for some magic, an easy answer, a one-and-done solution, then you'll never really understand the nature of the honest fight. And if you promise easy, once-for-all victories to others, then you'll never be much help to other strugglers. God works organically in our lives. Organic growth has integrity. God works step by step. He walks with you. He's always interested in how you take your very next step. Walking through life with him feels right. You're going somewhere. The day of completion will not arrive until the day when Jesus Christ arrives. When we see him, then we will be like him. So remember, we need to lose it. We need to learn it. And we need to live it. And that's how the means of grace come into play in the Christian life, which we'll talk about later. But that is how we change. That is how we change. Now remember, this is something already done. It's just like in Romans 6, he says, you know you've died with Christ, you've been buried with him, and you've been raised a new person. And then the question comes up, well, why do we ever sin? Because we're, we're, trying, we're trying to get used to being who we are. That is why, in many respects, sanctification is learning about who we are in Christ and living out the implications of that. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this uh, passage that is full of light. Uh, this passage in the book of Ephesians that underlines and... Um, elaborates on what it means to walk with you, to live our lifestyle, and that we are consciously learning Christ, and we're consciously learning to put off the old man, our person that was dominated by depravity and sin, and to put on the new man created in righteousness, holiness, and truth. Lord, help this become by your Spirit, a reality in our lives. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who are grateful for the redemption we have in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.